the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. As many of you know, we talk a lot about education on this show. I'm with H.G. Wells. Human history is a race running for office who intends to do and catastrophe. Someone running for office who intends to do something about the low state of education in this state is Sherry Sapir. She is running for superintendent of public education. Ms. Sapir, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. First-time guest. I do this with all first-time guests. Tell us a little bit about yourself, any autobiography you want, and how you came to be wanting to run for this office. Sure. I came here from Israel over 20 years ago after serving in the military, and I have uh, lived in Arizona since. I have three young children, eight, six, and three. I have my own real estate brokerage, and I'm a general contractor. But the reason I decided to run for superintendent of public instruction is because the system is failing our children. And the past year has shown us just how badly it is failing our children. And I don't see myself trusting any educator or politician to do what we need them to do for our children. So I decided to step up and uh, make sure that we are protecting our children from the catastrophe that's going on in the schools right now. Well, I'm delighted to hear it. I came to, uh, your name came to me through some folks who had heard you give some presentations around the Valley, and it sounded like uh, you're the kind of candidate I would uh, I would want to promote as much as possible. I went to your website. Let me give it out. It's electshirisapir.com, and you spell your name S-H-I- R-Y-S-A-P-I-R. And it's it's a fabulous website. I want it not, not necessarily because of that it looks good, but because of what it talks about under the issues. I learned something I have to admit I was unaware about, that there is a p- Parents' Bill of Rights in Arizona. Would you say something about that? It looks like we could use more enforcement yes. of it, and the rest of the country could use more of it, too. That would be nice. Yeah. Yes, enforcement is, and that's the problem. Yeah. We have some things in statute that are just not enforced. The Parents' Bill of Rights, uh, 1602, is one of those, and it states specifically that parents have the right to direct the education, the upbringing, the moral and religious training of a minor child. Parents also have the right to make medical decisions on behalf of a minor child. I would argue that uh, that statute is being violated on a daily basis. Clearly, they are making decisions for our children of what kind of information comes in front of them, the medical decisions with the quarantine, the vaccine, vaccine proofs that they're asking right now, the masks, absolutely, the shutdowns initially. All of these things happen without our consent, without our approval, and for some reason um, they get away with it. Uh, Ms. Sapir, tell us a little bit about your views on those issues of edu- uh, uh, sc- uh, mandates for, for, for vaccine and masks for children in our schools. What say you about those? It is very simple at this point. You know, back in March of 2020, we all did not know what COVID was about, and there was some fear, and it was justifiable. So we took a break, and they told us 14 days will help us to, you know, flatten the curve. Well, we're a year and a half into this. At some point, 
all of these decision makers should have stopped and said, you know what, we see the statistics, we see the studies from all over the world, we see that the children do not contract the virus in a high rate, they do not have severe symptoms, they very rarely hospitalize, and death is extremely, extremely rare, pretty close to zero. At that point, the decision should have been, we have to bring them back to the schools because, A, every day that they lose, they don't get back. B, there's no way that they're going to be able to make up for this lost time, especially when the system is not even trying to, to make up for any of this time that they lost. With all this COVID money, you would think they're going to give some tutoring for these children. I mean, some of these schools were closed in Phoenix for over a year mm-hmm. online. I mean, it's unimaginable the regression that was going on. They're a year or two behind. Let me ask you. They've never gone to the next level. No, I I agree. And it's not as if they were doing stellar. Our our children generally is not as if they were doing stellar before they were given that time off and losing that learning. Let me ask you another element about this, Ms. Sapir, if I can. And that is um, not just their educational attainment, but. Uh, hampering their emotional growth and their psychological well-being. Is that not also an issue here? Absolutely. And, you know, I am not an educator. I don't have a degree in child development. But I can assure you that I understand that when a child is uh, not advanced in speech, if they have all kinds of mental uh, delays and physical delays, putting a mask on their face, keeping them away from people that actually smile to them and they can see their face interacting with people. I mean, they're talking about this glorious spiritual environment for special needs children. Mm-hmm. You cannot put a special need child in a any uh, virtual environment. That's an oxymoron. Mm. But they do. Well, and the amount the amount of regression is no, go, no, go ahead. I, I, I mean, you're, on, you're, on, you're exactly where I am. It seems to me we have been using children to play out our larger political battles that adults should be responsible for. It seems to me there's a lot of – well, I often say there wouldn't be children or, or youth problems if there weren't adult problems. But it seems we have foisted Absolutely. an awful lot on children as adults, particularly over the last year and a half. Yes, and I reject – and it may be controversial, but I reject the notion that in order to protect the elderly – we need to take away from the life of our young. I just disagree with it. Again, if there was proof at any point in time that this virus was so fatal and, you know, would have caused so much damage and the, the kids were one of the biggest causes for it spreading throughout the, the communities, I would have said, sure, you know, we have to think this through. But we know it's not true. And at that point, the decision should have been we have to take them back and give them normalcy. And, and you know, some of these kids are abused at home. Oh, Their only refuge oh. is to go to school. And we as a society kept them home. And it's awful. It's also where a bulk of that reporting comes is from school school administrators and teachers, right? I mean, I, exactly. I, I, I know places like DCS and stuff, they were, they were worried because they weren't getting phone calls. It's not as if the abuse stopped. It's that the reporting did. Uh, exactly. We're talking to Sherry Sapir. She is running for superintendent of public instruction. ElectSherrySapir.com is her website. Could I have you say a word about critical race theory too? I, I've seen some of our some of our schools in the state adopting things like the 1619 curricula. About this, you say what? Yes. First of all, I want to alert your audience. 
critical race theory is not just a class that you opt in and out of. It's not just a 1619 project that you know you're going into a civic class and you find it there or you don't. This is not what critical race theory is about. Critical race theory is the lens through which everything in education is being looked through, from discipline to multicultural education to bilingual studies to history to high-stakes testing, everything they do, <clears throat> all these scholars in education for years, for decades, they have been looking at it through the lens of critical race theory. And what that means is every experience your child has has to be because of how he feels as an oppressed or oppressor through the race, sex, or class, because the intersectionality was kind of combined with critical race theory some, somewhere in the 90s. And so... Make no mistake about it, even if you ban critical race theory by law, which we tried, but now it's being challenged in the courts, uh, even if you did that, it's not going to change the way a teacher can present certain materials. And we know that you can't present certain materials uh, in, in a biased way. So until we change the culture in the schools and until we, we teach teachers in a different way, because I can tell you, I see what they're teaching them in the colleges, in ASU and the teachers' colleges, they are indoctrinating the teachers is the problem. So by the time they get to your classroom, it's a lost cause. Absolutely. That's all they know. Absolutely. And that needs to be fixed. Well, I think, uh, as you point out on your website, uh, that it's absolutely true that this position you're running for, more than anything, is to uh, use the bully pulpit and to encourage people, encourage our schools, encourage teachers, encourage parents, encourage children. And uh, I have to tell you, you have encouraged me. I know this was a last-minute thing. I just knew I wanted to get you on as quickly as I thank could. You. So I want to thank you uh, for giving us your time. I know you had to break away from a speech. I'll let you get back to it. But I want to invite you to come in studio and do an hour with us and take some calls uh, if that would be something you're interested in. Shiri. I would love to. Absolutely. Let I me give out to. your website one more time, electshirisapir.com. And am I saying your name right? I should have asked right off the top. Yes. <laughs> I apologize. Yes. Oh. No, you're doing great. Electshirisavir.com, S-H-I-R-Y-S-A-P-I-R. I look forward to hearing a lot more from you, Shiri, on this show. I look forward to hearing a lot more from you on a lot of other shows as well. Thank you, Seth. I appreciate Thanks that. Thanks for taking Have some time. Have a great time. afternoon. You betcha. Thanks. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. Your show here on out. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602 I'll say a few more words about education in America in a few moments, but first, Les is in Phoenix. Hello, Les. Hello, Seth. Um, I was listening to the, the candidate for superintendent of public instruction talking about the Parents' Bill of Rights and so on in Arizona, and I'm, I'm well aware of that. But about 30 years ago, I was in court with a friend who was trying to get custody of his children, you know, the, the, the way those things work. Oh, yeah. And he made the statement, he said, the state has no authority to regulate my children, to, to my, my, the relationship with my children. And Judge Strick looked down at the bench from him, so just just glared, and he said, the state owns your children. Hmm. Sounds we like what Castro used to say. We were flabbergasted, and he said, the parents' patre do- doctrine kicks in. He said, look up Flating versus Sanford, an Arizona Supreme Court case, 75P, second, 685, Arizona, 1938. And in there, it was a habeas corpus, and 
and in there it says all children declared uh, legitimate. A, a child is primarily a ward of the state. The sovereign has the inherent power to legislate for its welfare and to place it with either parent at will or take it from both parents and place it elsewhere. It may be considered as the settled doctrine in American courts that all power and authority over infants are a mere delegated function entrusted by the sovereign state to the individual parent or guardian, revocable by the state through its tribunals, and to be at all times exercised in subordination to a paramount and overruling direction of the state. So this is what's telling me is what's happening behind the scenes. They're invoking the parents' patre doctrine, where they're taking total, complete control of the children away from the parents because everything is done in the name of the state. We shepherded this thing through, and there's a case very similar to this, and it's been a long time, in almost every state. It's really disturbing. If you can look that case up and look at yeah, it... Yeah, would you do me a favor, uh, two, two confessions. Uh, one, I don't know the case, I don't think, unless it's something else I'm not thinking of. Uh, and uh, I apologize for that. But would you send it? Uh, send me at least the name or and the spellings of it. I'll, I'll do my best to look into it. Yeah, there, there's more to it than that. Sure. The habeas corpus case and so on. But those it, those are the, the some of the statements that really jumped out at me when I was reading it 30 years ago. Is well, wait, wait a minute. Who, who's he to say that the father can't have custody or mother can't have custody of a child when there's no violence, abuse, and things like that. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd love to read it. I'd love to see if it's been superseded or um, if it's still good law, and I'd love to see where it and how it's applied. Uh, I really would, Les. If you can uh, uh, go to my website on, on the Patriot, uh, 960thepatriot.com, and send me the oh, email. Okay. That'd be great. I'll go ahead and do it for you. Yeah, I okay. appreciate it, sir. I, I, I listen to what's going on now, and I say that's exactly what's happening with these school boards. Is they're They're... they're they're telling us, we own your children, and we're going to raise them the way we want to. And like, like Terry McAuliffe said, you have no right. Yeah, I think Terry McAuliffe said the quiet part out loud. And uh, I'm glad, I'm glad no he right put it out there. I, you know, I you am glad no finally right. someone told the truth. A few yeah. times, once in a while, a Democrat <laughs> will tell the truth. Al Schenker, the head of the United Federation of Teachers, told the truth once in the 70s when he said, as soon as children start paying union dues, they'll be my concern. Once in a while, they tell the truth. Randy Weingarten told a little bit of the truth, probably didn't mean to, when she said we will defend teachers' rights to teach critical race theory or uh, uh, at least a euphemism for critical race theory, even as they're telling us critical race theory is not in the elementary and secondary schools. So, um, yeah, please, Les, let me um, let me see it and I'll I'll. I'll I'll look into it a little bit, uh, a little bit more. Some people like to call me names at times by calling me an attorney. I don't know if I'm really an attorney. I went to law school. I passed the bar in another state. I haven't practiced in a long time. Don't hold it against me. But I, um, I, I uh, did not. Uh, I, I did not sit for the bar in Arizona. I, I did it uh, back when I was in Massachusetts in D.C. So uh, I'm a little less familiar with Arizona case law than. Then I probably should be, but uh, that's that's the reason Paul is on this in Scottsdale. Hi, Paul. Hi, how you doing? Yeah, listen, you know, all you have to do is look at your contracts, look at your agreements. As far as your children, did you ask the state of Arizona to be a third party to your marriage contract? Did you read the recent revised statutes? It'll tell you in there, you know, what they have authority to do. I mean, basic, basically, UCC says that. Uh, Common law is superior to all statutory law. You don't have to ask the state of Arizona for permission to get married and have them involved in your contract. But when you do, 
under their revised statutes, asking them permission. Guess what? You better read what it says. Yeah, will you send that to me, too? I appreciate it, Paul. I Yeah, I, I, I knew of neither of both of these things. Um, so if you can if you can send them to me, I'll, I'll certainly crunch it uh, and look into it. And uh, maybe we can even throw it at uh, at our uh, at our constitutional litigation scholar, uh, Brett Johnson, for his uh, weekly installment on Wednesday when he talks to us about these things as he does every week. So, yeah, throw those things at me. I would uh, or send them to me. Better yet. <laughs> Better yet. Send them to me and I will uh, happily look into it. Happily. I, the bill reminded me of something I did want to get into on children, America and education. And it's a small thing, but it's a big thing at the same time. Many may think it's small. I think it's big. At the, at the same time that we had a movement in this country, a vocal, active, and in many cases even violent movement in this country to actually remo- take away, uh, destroy the iconography of many of our founders from Washington, Jefferson, Frederick Douglass, you name it. You know what went on last summer. Um, uh, p- people will do what people will do. Nancy Pelosi's response was to that. Um, when it comes to that, I've often said that I don't really blame the 20 and 30 and maybe even almost 40-somethings, maybe 40-somethings. I don't really blame them for what they don't know. They have been, as the song from South Pacific has it, deliberately and carefully taught, taught to hate, taught to hate the uh, founding and the uh, – and the uh, and the uh, emblems and the history of America. Their view about the history of America is that all the wrongs we have done, which is going to happen here because we're not perfect, all the wrongs we have done are the American story. None of the rights that we have done, none of the things we got right, none of the things we got correct, none of the things that we got done miraculously, none of that is part of the American story, only the things we've done wrong. And the irony of it is almost everything we did right trumped and defeated, defeated almost everything we had wrong. And what we had wrong were inheritances in many cases of things that every other society had wrong as well. But when you have 20-somethings in the streets or really a cadre of 20 and 30-somethings who are now in the teaching professions – who don't know the first thing about Washington, Madison, Jefferson, our founding generation, or our founding itself, or think they know but don't really know because they've been you know, subject to propaganda for the last 20 or 30 years, you can't really blame them. Again, it's an adult-initiated and instigated problem. It's something adults foisted on kids. Kids became adults, and they repeated what they knew. But the point is... You can't love something you don't know. They've been deliberately mistaught, and I'm going to say something about that when we come back. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. 
Uh, that line I was using, you can't, um, you can't love something you don't know. It would be nice if we could teach pe- uh, students to like America. Love is what we used to uh, instill, instantiate, and try and communicate because it is a place worth loving for those that knew American history. The, as I said, it, this is a, a perhaps big but – uh, perhaps small but I think big issue. Some could see it as small. I think it's big because we miss all kinds of cultural – cues and clues as to how we end up where we end up. Uh, Take the simple thing. What do most children know? What's their first introduction to George Washington? If a parent didn't tell the story perhaps of the apple tree (laughs) or or something like that, isn't it the dollar bill? Isn't that usually – a child's first introduction to Washington other than folklore. It's the dollar bill. And and I have to tell you, I've always thought it was a frankly um, dis- disgraceful portrait of George Washington if you want to encourage people to esteem him. The Gilbert Stuart, I mean, he was a great painter, but but this is a man – George Washington, of impressive greatness, who, among other things one historian wrote, was known as the fiercest chieftain in the forest. That's an exact direct quote. The fiercest chieftain in the forest. Is that what you get by looking at a dollar bill? Is that what you would want your kids to look up to, though, as the kind of person who was you know, first in the first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. The fiercest chieftain in the force. Wow, you have to understand what a child gels to, what catches a child's attention, whether they are uses of enchantment or uses of truthful history, because in this country, magically enough and miraculously enough, our actual history is better than that which was invented. I call it the second greatest story ever told. And it is a historical and moral crime. It's not just a moral. It's a historical and moral crime, what has been done with it by the professionals. But even in the culture, even in the culture. But this is not just about Washington. This is not just about Washington. I was talking about Ulysses S. Grant is, 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 the, is, is how this came up the other day. I think someone was mentioning Brett Baer's new book on him, which I haven't read yet, but I look forward to because I'm a huge Grant fan. If you're a child growing up in most of this country, you are taught two or three things about Grant, and that's about it. And what are those things? Those things are he led a scandal-plagued administration, he was a general in the Civil War, and he, and he had a problem or, 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 or dismissed the fact that he had a problem with alcohol. That's what you get. That is not who Ulysses is. It's one of the greatest biographies and autobiographies in the world. Why do I say autobiographies? His autobiography, published by Mark Twain, by the way, as he wrote from his porch, suffering and dying from throat cancer, is one of the most beautiful pieces of Americana. Grant is an amazing thing that the progressives did everything they could to diminish Students would do well to learn more 
not just about Washington, but of course Grant too. And there's a way to even get at it except for the fact that the progressives has destroyed Frederick Douglass as well. How much do children know about Frederick Douglass? These people should be brought back into the classroom and into the hearts and minds of the countrymen that exist today because of their efforts then. And Frederick, uh, Frederick Douglass is an interesting example. So for years in front of the Maryland State House was a statue of Roger Taney, who wrote the Dred Scott decision. He was a Marylander. I had suggested for years that they replace that statue with that of Frederick Douglass. They got rid of Taney. They didn't put up anything in its place. And the perhaps greatest irony of it all is that today's left reads the founding of America the same way Roger B. Taney read the founding of America and not the dissent, dissents in Dred Scott. That's the real irony. But I'm going to tell you something about Frederick Douglass and Ulysses S. Grant, S. Grant you didn't know and I think you'll find beautiful when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Just talking about angles to teach and help create anew um, the, 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 the look and pedagogy over great Americans as a way of not only, of course, teaching history, but getting children to kind of like their country again, like this country again, much less love it, which would be even better. But as I as I keep pointing out, you can't you can't love what you don't know. And on the chopping block, besides Washington, Jefferson was thrown out of City Hall by the mayor recently, uh, De Blasio. Um, there are others who are who 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 people know very little about anymore, and they used to know a lot about Ulysses S. Grant, of course, being one of them, but Frederick Douglass also. And it seems to me the story of them together they are out of favor. They are out of favor with the progressives because what of the, that, that which they stood for, which was uh, a great belief in and, and, and strong commitment to the American founding. And I know it's popular among certain athletes, retired athletes, to quote Frederick Douglass in portions, in portions, but they selectively quote him. They selectively quote him. They never quote what he said about the Constitution being a glorious liberty document. They never put that in there. But in any event, Frederick Douglass and Ulysses S. Grant were so linked and so united, Frederick Douglass turned down an opportunity to run for presidency of the United States in 1872. Do you know why? So he could commit all his attention to garnering the re-election for Ulysses S. Grant. So much so, he wrote an eight-page pamphlet. It was a printed pamphlet for the black churches. Uh, I think they were called, forgive me, I think they were called the Negro churches at the time. But but the reason I even make that point is I believe that was that was the title of it, Frederick Douglass's address to the black churches on behalf of Ulysses S. Grant. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's beautiful writing, this man who was not allowed to learn, not allowed to read, who taught himself with the Columbian order. Can I just share with you, would you mind terribly if I just shared with you, maybe to help whet your thirst on some of this, that which our children are being denied today and have been for way too long. It's the last paragraph, which isn't very long, it's like three sentences, the last paragraph of Frederick Douglass's message to black church members throughout America. 
and you can get it online. It's not easy to get. You have to you have to get it through a government resource, which itself is a crime. Uh, that it, they make it so hard to find. But he wrote, such is the record, after detailing all of Ulysses S. Grant's great achievements, he writes, such is the record of the great chieftain whose sword, sword, whose sword cleft the hydra head of treason and by whose true heart and good right arm you gained the ballot, that glorious insignia of your citizenship. Such is the record of the wise statesman for whom you trusted your first ballot for president. For no other than him can you trust your second. Rally then to his support with that resistless spirit in which you fought for your liberties, with that deep sincerity in which you mourned the foul death of your liberator Lincoln, and with the same exultant hope in which you made General Grant your first president with your first votes in 1868. Is that not beautiful prose? Is that not some of the... So children are denied all of this now. All of this. And it's a shame. And they're, and, and they're going to be tr- deprived more and more of it as more and more of these statues and school names get changed away from the people we used to esteem. We used to... I mean, there you have it right there. There you have it right there as, as to why you can see why you can see Grant would be out and Frederick Douglass would be out. Because they're talking about great things that overcame bad in America. Again, you, you understand my analysis, if not thesis, about the progressive effort at education in America. It's to emphasize everything we did wrong and diminish, erase, eradicate, eliminate everything we did right. And... The real irony is it's in and of itself bad history. It's bad history. There should be both because at the end of the day, the right in almost every case we can think of of the ills of, of, of American history, the right triumphed over them. The right rallied and triumphed over them. It's a story of great success overcoming certain great evils in this country. The fact that we didn't start off as a utopia – can't be the fault of anyone who knows that utopias are impossible. And that's part of the problem, too, because the Marxists don't think utopia is impossible. It's like friends of mine, like Paul Boyer and others, teach books on (laughs) utopia in the classrooms. At good schools, they communicate that which is impossible. But i.e. utopia. But it's right there, and Madison said it too in the Federalist Papers. If men were angels, we would not need governments. So men aren't angels, and men don't always act like angels, and men don't even always act like angels in this country. But the question here is, did something angelic take place by the good and decent part of America, which was always greater than the evil part? I don't understand why the Civil War is taught in this country the way it's taught and not as a minority of states and a minority of our population hewing to be slave, hewing to the confederacy and be and consisting of slave states because teaching that fact of history undermines the entire progressive project why are we emphasizing the minority view that lost as definitive of america and not the majority view that actually won 
it's another weird version of the concept of a tyranny of the minority. What an unfortunate thing that that which was defeated on the battlefield in the 1860s has been resurrected by the very left that shames us for it to use the left to use the ideology of the defeated side of the 60s to tell us our 1850s and 60s to tell us that our founding was wrong. Yeah, there was that view. There was that view. There was the view that the Declaration of Independence was a lie. We defeated that view on the battlefields of the 1860s. You don't believe me? Go read what Roger Taney said. Go read what Alexander Stevens said. Go read what Jefferson Davis said. It sounds just like the BLM today. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, and thanks for spending a portion of your afternoon with us. I got a lot of uh, emails asking if I could uh, restate a portion of what I said in the first hour. It was inspired by Dennis Prager's show earlier today after um, he was back broadcasting on his recovery from COVID. And it got us into kids, vaccines, mandates, and masks, and I just wanted to make certain as we go through these debates, people understand the fully vaccinated have died from or with COVID at seven times the number of all children since January of 2020. And the question then becomes, who are we doing this for? And I hope it's not to satisfy something like an authoritarian personality disorder, because it does seem to me we are punishing children in the name of some kind of hydra-headed progressive achievement. Hannah Arendt, the great philosopher, wrote in 1957, the project of progressive education by abolishing the authority of adults implicitly denies their responsibility for the world into which they have been bearing their children and refuses the duty of guiding them into it. And it makes you want to ask, as she asked, quote, have we now come to the point where it is the children who are being asked to change or improve the world? And do we intend to have our political battles fought out in the schoolyards? It took a while to answer that question. She asked it in 1957. Clearly, the answer has become yes. And if the answer is something like children can spread COVID to adults, I can only say a society that fears its children is a society that has surrendered all moral authority and indeed the entire concept of adulthood and childhood. It's little better than a society that will torture its children. Children are not monsters. In fact, adults are instructed to dispel the notion of monsters when children fear them. The responsibility of adults is not to turn children into monsters or to make them feel like they are. We'll keep working at it. But until tomorrow, God bless you all and class dismissed.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.